Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Doing pretty well? Great. Well, welcome everyone here in the auditorium and at Church Online. So grateful that you chose to join us for worship today. My name's Adrian, and it's great to be with you. We are in this series, God's Story, Our Story, and within it, we're looking at a few different weeks as we take slices of a section of the scripture that's called the prophets. And we started this last week, and uh, we noted last week, as I jump in and judge just a moment here, that the prophets in the scripture uh, speak to a number of issues that were going on in Israel at the time of the exile and at the time of Israel being conquered by foreign nations. And I just have to admit here on the front end of this message that sometimes the prophets are a little bit weird, aren't they? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that about the Bible. Sometimes they say things and they say them in such a way that is a little bit strange. Is there anyone else in here that would admit to that? Okay, yeah, yeah. They're kind of a, they're a little bit redundant at times. And the prophets that we're in this week and next week again, uh, they're angry and they're disappointed and they're frustrated and they're passionate. And the reason for all of that is what we talked about last week as we talked about their first theme, which is worship. They're bringing the people of Israel back to worship. The prophets are calling us back to worship. And God is seen most intensely when his people are oftentimes furthest from him. And this is, a pe- this is a period in Israel's history where they're really, really far from God. And God's love, his passion for his people is shown very intensely for them in this season. As he speaks to three different themes that we're speaking about these three weeks. Last week was worship. Next week will be God's great love for the world, which Israel was neglecting at this time in, the history, in their history. And then this week, God's love for for mercy and justice, and his longing for the people to come to him in mercy and justice. So, hey, one thing you can do for me today is give some feedback to me, okay? Because this is kind of a challenging message. I want to tell you that on the front end. And the prophets are pretty challenging. From Isaiah to Malachi, they have their way of stepping on our toes, don't they? And so, uh, we're going to be in the book of Micah. And uh, there's just three major verses that I want you to take with you today. We'll get to in just a moment. But to frame the conversation, Bob, before we get to those, let's just talk for, for a moment about what makes the prophets a little bit different and sometimes even a tad bit odd. So here's Micah. You, you pick up Micah in, in chapter 1, of course, and he's writing it about 700 B.C., to the northern kingdom of Israel, and then also to the southern kingdom of Judah, as they're about to be destroyed one after another, first by Assyria, and then by Babylon. And Micah is upset with the people as he's speaking for the heart of God, and he speaks to them about these two issues, idolatry and injustice. Listen to the way he speaks of Israel. He says, uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. God says of Israel at this time. Okay, false religion, idolatry is happening in the world at this time. Then over in chapter 2, it says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because... 
It is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob people of their inheritance. Okay, do you see what's going on in the ancient world at this time as Micah is speaking? Here's a summary in these two chapters of the idolatry that the prophets are speaking against and the injustice that the prophets are speaking against. Micah reflects on his feelings about all of this, and this will get to our point. He says, because of this, I will weep and I will wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Did I mention that the prophets at times are a little bit odd? I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Do you wish your pastor would do that from time to time? No, no. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. I mean, who says these things? Who talks in this way? And why do the prophets get so heated up about things? You ever ask that question when you read this portion of the Bible? The prophets had as this burden of theirs to get frustrated, to get upset about the things that upset the heart of God. We tend to read the prophets and we kind of say to ourselves, well, what's the big deal? Why are you so angry? I know there's a lot of violence in the land. And we look around our world and we know there's a lot of violence in the land. But it really doesn't affect me on a day in and day out basis, so why do I have to think about it? Or take cheating. I know there's cheating all over the place. There's cheating in relationships, and there's cheating in business, and people are defrauded all the time, and you just pick up a business section of any newspaper or magazine, and you read about it again and again and again, but it's not happening to me, so do I have to really think about it? The prophets thought about these things. Jesus, of course, was also called a prophet, wasn't he? And Jesus said things like, when someone who is naked goes unclothed, or when someone who's hungry goes unfed, or when someone's in prison and he or she goes unvisited, I am hurt. The words of Jesus, not of me, the words of Jesus. To which I'm like, Jesus, why do you have to make such a big deal over these things? Why can't you just take a chill pill, as it were, from time to time? This was the burden of the prophets to call the people back to God's heart related to mercy and justice. The events that appalled the prophets, of course, are very, very common in our day as well. They were common in 700 B.C., and they're common in 2018 A.D. You think about the kinds of things that are going on across our world today. These are the very things that the prophets would speak about and I don't really want to hear about babies being killed too, too young. And I don't want to really hear about domestic abuse. And I don't really want to hear about the increase in racism in America. And for sure there is. As racial relations have diminished, there's been a substantial statistical rise in hate groups in America of all different kinds. And I don't really want to hear about all that. Or how about slavery? Like, do I want to think about, 
Do you know that there are more slaves worldwide today than there were in the 1860s at the eve of the Civil War? Did you know that? And 60,000 of them are being trafficked right here in America, oftentimes on I-80 just south of us right now. Did you know that? Again, I don't really want to hear about that. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to, to feel it. But the prophets had this burden that they did see it. They did feel it. They thought about it. For me, it's more like kind of this kitchen faucet that's broken, and I have another faucet, and so I'm not going to really deal with this faucet. I'm just going to ignore it, and maybe it'll go away. But this was the burden of the prophets. They noticed what was wrong and that needed to be fixed in order to get God's people back to the heart of God. It was their burden and it was their gift. And I don't know about you, I am a 66 book of the Bible Christian. Anyone else? I want to go after the whole Bible, no matter when it steps on my toes or not. I want to invite the Bible to step on my presuppositions, and the prophets do it quite frequently. Now, how are we to respond to the challenges, the trials, the violence, the ugliness that we see all over our broken world? I confess that sometimes my my response is indifference, and other times my response is guilt at never being able to do enough. Even today, as I stand here, I planned this message seven months ago when we developed our Bible reading plan that would take us to Micah chapter 6 today, and I was excited to preach it back then. This morning, not all that excited to, to be in these passages. But the prophets beg us to ask the question, how would we respond to the brokenness, to the injustice, to the lack of love that we see all over the world? And in one of the most eloquent, beautiful passages of Scripture, one of the most stunning quotes you will ever read, God gives us His response to our world's great need. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, you'll see this on the screen or you can follow along with me in your Bible. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves one year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the response that God invites us to from the prophet Isaiah, to prophet Micah, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. As you read through this passage, I hope you notice the the progression of offerings that are noted here. What's being spoken of is the people of Israel coming to the temple and giving their offering to God. And of course, the offering or the tithe was the the means to provide for the priests and the poor amongst the people. And so people would bring their offerings to God to provide for these needs, to care for the temple. And each of these questions is asking, would God be satisfied with this? 
And each of the questions demand an answer of no. They're all rhetorical questions. So it goes in order like this. Here's the progression. Shall I come before God with a burnt offering? That's a little small portion of my crops or my produce, the first portion of all that God has given. Will he be satisfied with that? And of course, everyone could do that. Or shall I bring a calf that's a year old? And only the wealthy, only a few people in Israel, the wealthy would be able to bring a calf that was a year old. Should I bring a thousand rams? And only the king would have enough money to bring a thousand rams before God. Or shall I bring 10,000 rivers of oil? And no one would have the resources, no one would have the funds to bring that kind of offering to God. Then finally he says, should I bring my firstborn child as an offering to God? Tragically, part of the injustice that was happening in ancient Israel at this time is there were some leaders who were even mimicking the cultures around them and offering their firstborn children as sacrifices to God. Hard to believe, right? And so the rhetorical answer to each of these questions is, no, God is not satisfied by any of those things. As we talked about last week from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. I want acknowledgement of God rather than your burnt offerings. So while we might give a tithe to God, we might give an offering to God, we don't suppose for a moment that we are somehow paying him off. He owns it all, right? He's given us our every breath. As we just sang, he gave us the breath in our lungs. He owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. We don't give him anything. We give, but because it's good for us to give. He changes our hearts as we give. But what God ultimately wants, even more than any offering that we might give out of duty to God, is this. I have shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So what we're looking at here, though, this morning is the extension of what we talked about last week, that God says, we offer our worship to Him, all of me for all of God's honor. I give my whole to Him, all of me for your honor, God, in my prayers, in my communion, in my giving, everything as worship unto you. And then what is the lifestyle that follows, that follows after that? And the lifestyle that follows after that is described here in Micah 6, and it begins with this choice. We choose to do justice. I choose. I make this decision as I follow God. God wants us to choose justice. Now, we choose justice on a day-in and day-out basis, well, whenever we might have the opportunity to do so, first and foremost, but because God is just, isn't that right? God is just, and He's to be worshipped because He is just, and we, as we emulate Him, as we follow Him, we follow His character, which is one of justice. What is justice? Perhaps this illustration will help us a little bit. Dave Hagler, a former referee and umpire who spent much of his life refereeing basketball games and umpiring baseball games, has this great story of justice that he wrote about in the Los Angeles Times. He says this, I was driving too fast in the snow in Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it, telling him how worried I was about insurance, what a good driver I am, and so on. He told me if I didn't like it, I could go to court. 
first game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter up is the same policeman. I recognize him. He recognizes me. He asks me, how did that thing go with the ticket? I tell him, swing at everything. We hate when we are the victims of injustice, even if it's not actually injustice. We hold on to those stories, don't we? If those things happen to us, if those things happen to our friends, we tell those stories again and again and again. Men, what are your favorite kinds of movies? They're justice and revenge movies, isn't that right? I mean, there's a whole genre of movies made for men me included, I love those movies that are going after justice, going after revenge. Absolutely, yeah. But it's interesting, in my own life, when I get riled up about injustice, it's usually because I perceive that it's happened to me. Anyone else? I, I get riled up about injustice when I am cut off in traffic, when I get snubbed or overlooked, or someone doesn't pay attention to me, some perceived injustice. And Micah seems to be telling us here that we are to get as excited about, perhaps even more, other people's experiences of injustice as we do about our own. You know, we're in this interesting cultural climate today in which many people are told that the church should not care about things like justice and mercy. You ever heard that? Many people are told that the church should just focus on heaven, just focus on getting people to heaven, just focus on the by and by, and the church should withdraw from all conversations related to the public good, related to the public sector, related to public schools, we shouldn't be in there, or related to issues like poverty and racism or care for those with disabilities, that we shouldn't be concerned well with any of those things, we should just focus on the by and by of heaven. You ever heard that? Anyone? Can I encourage you to change the channel when you hear that? Because that is so much less than biblical Christianity. What we want here is the biblical Christianity that saves people from their sins for all of eternity by the cross of Jesus and is concerned with the well-being of ordinary vulnerable people here and now today. Why? Because the Bible says so. The Bible says so. There's some 2,000 verses in the scriptures related to God's loving heart for the vulnerable, for the left out, for the widow, for the orphan, for the marginalized, for the immigrant, and on and on while we can go. We cannot ignore these. You think about the first five books of the Bible called the Torah written by Moses. And Moses at numerous different times institutes laws for the people of Israel to follow, to to practice Sabbath, to give of their resources, to practice something called Jubilee that was for justice for the people, and then finally to lend to other people, listen to this, without interest, without, without interest, whoa, whoa, I mean this is just a different culture. I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one -one correlation but between that then and where we are today Someone else who's smarter than me well, would have to figure that out. But we have to pause and look at those passages and say, wow, what is the heart of God? Then you get to the prophets and you see the prophets saying, let righteousness roll like a mighty river and, and justice like a great stream. 
God has a heart for justice. You get to the New Testament, and you see it again and again from Jesus, who says, if any of you has two coats, give to the one who has none. Go the second mile with those who are hurting. You see, from Paul who said, because Jesus was rich and he became poor for our sake, we who are rich, me, we give to those who are poor. Or you think of James who says, pure and undefiled religion in the view of God our Father is this, to look after widows and orphans and others in their distress while keeping yourself unspotted by the world. This is the heart of our God. It's not either or, it is both and in his economy. I love the way Jesus puts it here in Matthew 23 as he's speaking to the Pharisees, the scribes, that is the religious leaders of Israel at the time. These are the pastors, if you will, and they simply didn't get it. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, these pastors, these religious leaders, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, a tenth of your crops, but you have neglected the more important, the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's good. You should have done the former. You should have given that offering, that tithe, without neglecting the latter, which is far more important. It goes to the heart of how we would live as instruments of worship before holy God. Theologian John Stott is uh, perhaps the most important voice in world missions and evangelism in the 20th century. He was a monster of a theologian, died seven or eight years ago, and he was the architect of something called the Lucane Covenant, which really charted the course for evangelism and world missions across the world for several decades. And he has this to say as he's talking about these two topics, evangelism and justice and mercy ministries. He says, it is, exciting, it is, it is exceedingly strange, it's strange, that any followers of Jesus Christ should ever have needed to ask whether social involvement was their concern. And that controversy should have blown up over the relationships between evangelism and social responsibility. For it is evident that in Jesus' public ministry, Jesus both went about teaching and preaching. He's quoting Paul in the book of Acts. And quoting Paul in the book of Acts, Jesus went about doing good and healing. These two things. Preaching and teaching, doing good and healing. The two have been intimately related to one another throughout the entire history of the church. This is God's heart. That we go after both. That we lead people to the cross, lead people toward the love of God and, and, and help them to understand God's great love that they would have eternal life with Him, but also help them now, care for them today. Now, when the Bible talks about justice, it's talking about the strong which is most of us, caring for those who are more vulnerable. It's talking about proper business practices, being honest in our business practices, choosing not to ever defraud someone, choosing to even help those who are hurting, going above and beyond for those who are hurting, giving people a hand up. It's the strong looking out for the weak as opposed to what is happening a lot today in our contemporary culture, which is the strong blaming the weak. You hear the difference? It's the strong looking out for the weak. 
God, give me this responsibility, as opposed to the strong looking for ways to blame the weak. And God invites us to choose justice. Second, God invites us to choose mercy. God invites us to choose mercy. The, the Hebrew word that Micah uses for, for mercy is called hesed. Can you say that out loud with me? Hesed. Isn't that a great word? Hesed. I like how that sounds. God invites us to choose hesed. And hesed, this Hebrew word, means loving kindness. It's expressed mostly to refer to God's loving kindness to us as expressed through his covenant relationship with us when we were far from him. There's this covenant relationship with Israel and with us that when we surrender to him, he will never leave us or forsake us. He will always treat us better than we deserve. That's mercy, treating people better than they deserve. And so when we choose mercy, well, we do the same. We choose to treat people far better than they deserve. Than they deserve. We choose to forgive people far more than they would deserve. Show loving kindness to people far more than they would deserve. Perhaps a few different examples of what would be helpful for distinguishing but between justice and mercy as we see them today. Say, for example, you have a coworker who comes to work and she's a little bit late on this given Monday morning. And as she enters into work, you see that she's all bruised and bloodied. And you ask her, what happened? And she tells you, oh, I, I tripped falling out of my car and I hit my head on the curb and this is what happened. You, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I take you to the hospital? Can I bandage your wounds? Can I take a few hours off of work to help you? Can I pray for you but also help you? That's Christ-like mercy. But imagine the next week she comes back in that same pitiful condition with some more bruises on her face, some more cuts on her face. The second time it happens, it wouldn't be enough to merely take her to the hospital and pray for her. The second time it happens, you have to pursue justice. You have to ask some questions and perhaps Call the authorities, if you know what I'm talking about. That would be pursuing Christ-like justice. You see the difference? And God invites us to both. I get the privilege here at this church of seeing both of these on a regular basis. Uh, a couple weeks ago, though, there was a gentleman who was walking through our parking lot, and he fell down, and he got bruised, and he had a difficult time getting up. It was about 100 degrees outside, and it was one of those hot, humid Nebraska days. And he fell down and he injured himself and there was a woman coming out of the church at that time leaving a meeting by, by the name of Nicole Norton. And she's a young lady well, with some young kids and she stopped and she sees the, this man and she needed to do other things but she stopped. And she brought him into her car and offered to take him to the hospital and instead took him to his house and called his wife. She was not available. So she bandaged his wounds and then followed back up with them later on the day. That is mercy. Isn't it beautiful when you see it? It makes the heart sing when you see it. I think about our regular mission trip to Chicago with Circle Urban Ministries and with the Rock of Our Salvation Church. And this is like a 30-year relationship that Carney E. Free has had with this evangelical free church in inner city Chicago. And on an annual basis, what we have is mostly white Nebraskans going to worship with mostly black Chicagoans. And they get together in the same room and they engage in this little conversation they call fudge ripple. In which brown people talk with white people about the way to see the Bible and political issues, and racial issues, and differences in how they see authority structures. 
and then they worship together in the same church. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall in those conversations? Wouldn't that be fun? Or maybe nerve-wracking? And then oftentimes after they worship together, these groups of Carney E. Free folks will go over to the local school that, Chicago, that Circle Urban Ministries has started, and it's a local public school, and they see that this is a decrepit school with rundown facilities, and they say, you know what? Little black girls and little black boys deserve the same high-quality education as we get in Kearney, so we're going to help them out too. And that, my friends, is called pursuing justice. Don't you love to be a part of a church that does those kind of things? I love that we are pursuing these kinds of things as a church. To, to share another example, you go down to the storehouse on a regular basis, and you'll see at the storehouse many, many advocates who are going out of their way for people who are very different than them. And sometimes they're pursuing mercy, and other times they're pursuing justice. They're always giving a hand up, not just a hand out. And sometimes they're even getting into the weeds of these people's lives and looking at the things that are really ugly. And I was talking to Justine about it and some of the life change that they've seen down at the storehouse, and she shared this with me. She said, Adrian, sometimes there is life change, but my life, my life has been changed as I've learned through this ministry how to show mercy. We see life change within the storehouse team. Our lives are changed through giving mercy to others, through giving a lot of second chances with people who are so very different than us. And again, sometimes we see life change in them, but even when we do not see the fruit of life change in others, we see God changing us. So bring it on. That's what I'm talking about. God would give us the blessing of giving justice and mercy, showing kindness and faithfulness to others, and in the same time, he will be changing us to be more and more like him. I think of many families in this church who pick up people from Crossroads Mission, pick up homebound folks who are elderly and isolated, pick up those well with disabilities and bring them to church each and every Sunday morning anonymously, who go visit the nursing homes. This is our deacon and deaconess team. They go visit the nursing homes on a month-in and month-out basis, and they go to church members who cannot come to church anymore, and they serve them communion. This is choosing mercy. It's choosing to treat people with loving kindness, perhaps even beyond what they deserve, because this is how Christ chose to treat us. He has shown us what is good, to act justly and to love mercy, and then finally, to walk humbly with our God. God wants us to choose humility. The third characteristic there from Micah is that we would choose humility in the way we act with others. I don't know about you, but this is a common characteristic in just about every person that I have deeply respected across my life. It's humility. That I don't need to talk about myself. I don't need you to know how great I am. But when I see someone who says, no, I, I want you to know how great God is. It's not about me. And I'm looking out for others as opposed to my own good. Perhaps humility is best personified through John the Baptist. Well, when he saw Jesus, and you'll remember his response, what did he say? You'll see it up on the screen. Let's read it together. What, what did John the Baptist say? Wow, man, if 
that would be my daily heart. God, you must become greater. I become less. It's not about me, God. It's about you and your kingdom and expanding your word in whatever we do. You know, I, I wonder if the prophets struggled with humility. They were loud and opinionated, and they heard directly from God. It was their job to correct Israel and draw Israel back to him. You ever meet someone who says they have the gift of prophecy? Do they ever struggle with humility? I think it's worthy of noting that there's an important theological distinction between being a prophet and being a jerk. Nobody wants you to go around correcting them. And those who believe they have the gift of prophecy, it can be easy to get prideful, but because you think it's your job to be right and show someone else that they're wrong. But the thing that I love so much about the prophets is this, what burned them was not anger. It wasn't showing other people that they were wrong. It wasn't correcting other people. It was a holy love for God and a holy love for people. And it's out of that holy love that he says some things to us, that Micah and Isaiah and Amos and many others say some things to us that, that I'd rather not hear. Maybe you'd rather not hear. But at least as I speak with millennials who are outside the church and many, many family and friends who are outside the church, what they want most is what Micah 6, 8 says. They're begging for someone. They're begging for the church to show them something unique, to show them faithfulness and righteousness and love and justice that practices what it preaches. And to be sure, we don't do these kinds of ministries just to gain a hearing from others. We do them merely because we love people and every person matters. But to be sure, as we engage these kinds of ministries, people, they listen. The world is begging the church for a demonstration of exactly what Micah calls us to still today. You, my dear friends, what does the Lord require of you and what is good but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Would you pray with me? Father, I, I just want to thank you, Father, for the simplicity of your word. There's times that I make it way more complicated than it needs to be. It's probably true of other people in this room as well that we simply don't boil it down to what your word simply tells us. And so we thank you though this morning that you give us these three very simple commands. They're not options, they're not choices. Their commands from the very heart of God. So Father, I, I pray for my friends in this room that you would help each and every one of us. You would start with me. I look in the mirror and I see that many days I am not a man of mercy, justice, or humility. And for that, I am sorry. We invite God that you would begin with us, that you would turn us a little bit more toward your heart even this week, that we would worship you from the heart. 
and that we would worship you in our actions toward others. Lord, would you awake us if we have fallen into any slumber? If we've missed the heart of God in these things, we all are susceptible to allowing the cares of this world to seep in, the priorities of this world to seep in, and then we can miss the heart of God that is right in front of us in the pages of Scripture. And to the extent we have done that, Lord, would you draw us back to you? And perhaps there are others in this room who are just brokenhearted today, and, and, and they're in need of your mercy. Maybe there's some in this room who have been oppressed, and they're in need of your justice, and I ask that you would give it to them. And Father, if there's a way that we can come around those who are needing your mercy and your kindness today, would you show us how to do so? Perhaps through one of the prayer partners or through one of our ministries at this church, we invite you, God, to use even us. Bring us back to the heart of our great God. The world may know. The world might see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven, in whose name we pray together. God's people say, amen.